This week, artificial sweeteners in food and drinks could be inducing glucose intolerance, possibly leading to obesity and diabetes. A compound that we presumably uh, consume to avoid these complications is in fact driving the microbiota to induce them or to contribute to them. And diversity in science, how change is needed to represent everyone. Striving for diversity is important for justice, but it's also important for rigorous science. Plus, a taster of our brand new podcast, Backchat, letting our reporters loose on their science stories. This is the Nature Podcast for September the 18th, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Noah Baker. Artificial sweeteners such as saccharin are some of the most common food additives. Created as a way to give people their sweet fix without the calories, they're the basis of diet products from fizzy drinks to ready meals. But new research calls into question the health benefits of these sugar-free treats. A team from the Wiseman Institute of Science in Israel have been investigating the impact of artificial sweeteners on our gut microbiome, the friendly bacteria that live in our gut and help us digest foods. What they found has come as quite a surprise. Kerry Smith spoke to author Erin Elenav and started by asking why he got interested in artificial sweeteners. One of our major focuses is the study of what we call the metabolic syndrome, which is this assortment of uh, very common diseases uh, that include uh, obesity, diabetes, fatty liver, all their complications, um, which constitutes one of the biggest epidemics in, in human history. And we and others in the field believe that it, it, it stems from a combination of genetic and environmental factors. And one of the major environmental factors is the changing diet. And uh, when, when looking at diet, one of the major changes um, is the the, the introduction of these uh, artificial sweeteners into our diet. So you first looked at mice that you fed um, a sort of a diet high in sweeteners. I mean, these are just common mixes of compounds that are also used in, in human foods, right? Exactly. So uh, we started the project by very naively uh, um, looking at three of the uh, most widely used commercial uh, artificial sweeteners. And the graduate student at my lab, Yotam Suet, who led uh, this study, just administered um, these uh, commonly used commercially available artificial sweeteners uh, to mice and used, of course, uh, many different controls, also many different formulation and doses of these artificial sweeteners. And then you watched what happened to the mice and in particular to their gut microbiota, to the bacteria that live in their guts. Yes, yeah, so, so the, the first surprising finding uh, was that the mice that, that were um, consuming those uh, three commonly used artificial sweeteners developed glucose intolerance, which is the earliest form leading eventually to the formation of adult onset diabetes. So once we established uh, this observation, we really wanted to understand what was causing it. And uh, since artificial sweeteners are both non-caloric and mostly non-absorbed uh, into, into our system. And this was puzzling to us, but one potential explanation is that despite the fact that they are not absorbed, they encounter all these trillions of bacteria that naturally reside within us that constitute the microbiota. So we, we asked ourselves whether the effect that we see, this uh, glucose intolerance that is mediated by these uh, artificial sweeteners, may be in fact mediated through their effects on our microbes. So these compounds, I mean, how do you think that they are having this effect via the gut microbiome and leading to glucose intolerance? The first effect that we noticed was the composition of the microbes uh, uh, was very reproducibly changing no matter which artificial sweeteners or which dose of artificial sweeteners uh, we would administer the mice. 
But this was just one effect, and perhaps an even more interesting effect was an effect on the function of the microbiota. We sequenced the entire genetic uh, makeup of all the bacteria in these microbiomes, and we found that their functionality has dramatically changed by, uh, by their exposure to uh, artificial sweeteners um, with uh, very specific metabolic pathways in these microbes that were very significantly expanded, inducing materials that have been associated with a tendency of the host, of the human or of the mouse, to develop obesity and, um, and, and uh, glucose intolerance. So it's as if the gut microbiome just doesn't really distinguish between a very high sugar diet that leads to obesity and a diet high in artificial sweeteners. Well, I would not go that far. Um, what we know, and this, this, this is uh, really the basis of our studies, is that the microbiome is very significantly affected by the food we eat. So the composition of the food is one of the biggest driving forces on the function of the microbiome. In the case of artificial sweeteners, the surprising finding was that um, a compound that we presumably uh, consume to avoid these complications is in fact driving the microbiota to induce them or to contribute to them. Yeah, the irony, right? Yeah. And um, you've also done some studies in humans. You had humans that don't normally eat a lot of um, artificial sweeteners. You just fed them loads of artificial sweeteners for a week. What did you see when you did that? Yeah, so we found uh, seven volunteers who do not consume artificial sweeteners whatsoever. And we enrolled them in a study in which we gave them the, the recommended doses of uh, saccharin for a period of five days. And we extensively monitored them both for the changes in their glucose intolerance and for their microbial changes in the microbiome. And um, to our surprise, um, we found that this very, very short-term exposure to one of the prototypical artificial sweeteners induced around 60% of these uh, volunteers a very rapid um, elevation in, in blood glucose or in glucose intolerance already within a few days of consumption of the artificial sweetener. We even took the microbiota from two of these uh, individuals who developed uh, um, glucose intolerance after uh, being exposed, and we transferred them into mice that do not have any uh, microbiota. And when the mice received the microbes from the people who were developing glucose intolerance, the mice developed also glucose intolerance. Many sweetener manufacturers and the companies that use those products claim that they are a safe alternative for people who are diabetic or for people who are dieting. I mean, your results, your evidence would, would point the other way. That's absolutely true. Um, this uh, set of experiments that we've uh, performed in this study are new and have not been uh, performed this way before. And, uh, of course, our uh, results and the conclusions that, that may be drawn from the, these results uh, are quite uh, striking and uh, open for public debate, I think. That was Eran Elenav from the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. Coming up in the research highlights, a bacteria found in a woman's private parts produces an MRSA-busting antibiotic and an artificial spleen that filters bacteria out of blood. But before that, this week we launched a brand new podcast. It's called Backchat and it brings you the stories and opinion behind the science each month. Ever wondered what reporters talk about in their morning meetings or what they think about the stories they're writing? This is your chance to find out. The podcast is hosted by our very own Kerry Smith and here's a little taster, a musical mashup, if you like. Joining me this month are three of nature's best looking reporters, Lizzie Gibney, Richard Van Norden 
and Ewan Calloway. Hi, guys. Howdy. Hello. Hello. We have stories of space, we have stories of intelligence, and stories of very sociable scientists. What's my sorry? <laughs> sorry, what's Ben Affleck got to do with uh, with this comet? It's shaped like a duck. What more do you need? Yeah. And it's shaped like a duck. <laughs> I think people were so happy when they found that, when it just kind of like came into focus. It was like something in Austin Powers, except less rude. It's a rubber duck in space. Ben Affleck films, Austin Powers films. Right, this is rapidly turning into the, the film review. But where would you guys um, send a probe if you could? I would, I would send one to Europa. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but it's quite a, takes a long time to get there. So Europa, exotic, bit of a schlep, like Mauritius. Ewan, you wrote a story this week on a new paper trying to find the genetic sort of roots of intelligence. Yeah, if you want to start a scientific spat, just talk about the genes behind intelligence. Is intelligence a bit like height? Height's easy compared to intelligence. And do you know where the balance is between like nature and nurture on intelligence? Um, the scientists, I thought... Putting I, you on the spot here, you Yeah, know. you're putting me on the spot here. Um, so they say, oh, we just need bigger studies. We need to sequence a million people or 10 million people. What if you, if you sequenced everybody? Basically, this study is... Welcome to the party, guys. It's complicated. Should we should we move on? Yeah, let's um, do it. I've pissed off enough people probably with just <laughs> what I've said. So that's e.calloway at nature.com if you want to send the hate mail. Thank you. Richard, social networks for scientists. It is staggering that the numbers in your feature of the people who are on these sites, ResearchGate, for example... Oh, yeah. So ResearchGate uh, recently claimed that it passed 5 million. And it says that it's only open to people who have you know, published research papers. So we're talking about an academic audience here. If you look at the OECD kind of estimations, there's only like 8 to 10 million like publishing academic researchers in the world anyway. I don't know why scientists aren't putting this stuff in other repositories on archive, on their own sites, but a lot of them seem to be putting it on ResearchGate, which I find quite interesting. It's because if there's more scientists there, it's uh, easier to procrastinate from actually writing your next paper, and that's why they like it. Any other business, things you're excited about, science that you've hated this week, anything emotional happening in your life? (laughs) (laughs) I might take it a bit too far. Two years ago, I made a bet with Ian Sample, a reporter at The Guardian, that the Higgs would not get the Nobel the following year, it did. I lost 10 quid. And I, I'm wondering if I could make another bet. Any other good bets then? Oh, that's, a, oh, that's a great it's, question. It's such a crapshoot for, for biology. Stop I mean, it. Just... I'm putting 10 quid on optogenetics. I'll take that bet. <laughs> Shake. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Nobody recycle anything yet. Richard might be roving through the bins. That was Backchat. To listen to the whole Backchat podcast, I promise it makes more sense, head to nature.com slash nature slash podcast or find it on the Nature Podcast feed in iTunes. Coming up, striving for diversity in science. But first it's time for the best science from outside nature. It's the research highlights, read by Charlotte Stoddart. Ladies, did you know your vagina is home to an antibiotic? Scientists have found that a bug living inside the vagina can produce a drug, suggesting it might be worth us mining the human microbiome for other possible medicines. Researchers in California trained a computer program to comb through genes known to make drugs. Then they asked the program to hunt for similar genes in the human microbiome. The search threw up thousands of matches, including genes that make a class of antibiotics called thiopeptides, used to treat MRSA and listeria. 
Back in the lab, the team isolated a thiopeptide from a vaginal microbe. They discovered the compound could kill the same types of bacteria as other thiopeptides. Find that paper in Cell. Scientists inspired by the spleen have made a device that can quickly rid blood of intruders from E. coli to Ebola. Blood infections can be hard to treat, and antibiotics aren't always effective. Now, a US-based team has bioengineered an artificial bio-spleen to filter blood. They coated magnetic nanobeads with a modified version of a human protein. The protein binds to sugar molecules on the surfaces of bacteria, viruses and fungi, and to toxins that trigger sepsis. The team tested the biospleen by using it to filter the blood of rats infected with different bacteria. Just hours later, it had removed more than 90% of bacteria from the rat's blood. Once the biospleen has removed most bugs, antibiotics and the immune system can fight off the remaining infection, say the authors. Find that paper in Nature Medicine. Humans are a diverse bunch. When studying things like disease, it's important to take that diversity into account, both in terms of the scope of the research and the way it's carried out. Historically, scientists have been rather poor at this. For example, most drugs are tailored to work best in people of European descent because they were tested in these communities. This is one of the issues covered in a diversity special this week, edited by Monja Baker. I spoke to Monja and started by asking about the bias in drug trials, the subject of a comment piece. Sometimes when researchers submit proposals to study ethnic minorities, um, those proposals are criticized because the analysis is considered to be too difficult. Um, If you have a population of European descent, it's more homogenous generally than the than the ethnic minorities that you would encounter in, say, the United States. But there's a saying that basically says you can study something very precisely that matters less, or you can study something that matters more, but it's a little less precise. And and I think that, you know, when you try and impose um, a situation where everything that you study is the same, it might be simpler to get answers, but it may not apply. You don't know how well it applies to everybody else. So what's next? What, how do we move forward? Is, does there have to be some kind of policy change? I think it's going to need to be a policy change, but other things need to be fixed too. One is that if you want to recruit ethnic minorities in the United States, it really helps if you are an ethnic minority yourself. And if you look at the numbers of scientists, ethnic minorities are underrepresented. And then if you look at studies that the NIH has done, if you're a minority scientist, in many cases, you're actually less likely to get a grant. So perhaps beyond just science policy, but there's also still very significant social questions that need addressing. That's right. That's right. We desperately need more more minority scientists if we're going to fix this. I think it seems very clear that, that one of the ways we need to move forward is to, is to look at communities that are affected by the conditions that we're studying. But even that can be slightly difficult to do within the current scientific practice. Another comment piece that's published this week in Nature is about the issue of informed consent, specifically with, with regard to trying to study mental health. Could you give me a sum up of what, what's meant by this term informed consent? 
Um, informed consent means that if you're going to do research on people, that they need to agree to be part of the research. They need to be told um, what's going to happen to them in the research and that if somebody wants to stop participating in the research, that they can even before the study is finished. That sounds like a very sensible process to go through, but it gets a little bit complicated when working with people in, in more diverse communities. The current practice of informed consent uh, is that you explain what the study's about, and then the individual um, who chooses to participate signs a form that says, essentially, I have read this and I understood this and I agree to participate. Um, and there's there's actually several problems with this when you go to other communities. Um, the one that I found most surprising was just the act of a signature carries different meanings. So to some people, if you have to sign that you have agreed, you are showing that you do not trust each other. It changes the dynamic. And specifically working with mental health issues, often scientists might be very, very keen to work with communities that perhaps are at their very most vulnerable. Yes, this is true. So it's it's really important for researchers um, to consider not just what needs to be understood, but what the implications might be for asking people to participate in a in a study. Um, for example, if you have undocumented migrants, um, keeping a list of names or keeping a list of names in an insecure way could actually endanger them. And so researchers have to make sure that their study will not harm the people who are participating. Do each of these um, particular processes take, need to be taken individually or can there be one policy that's used in general? There really is a case-by-case -case basis. If you're going into a community, you need to learn enough about that community to know what informed consent means for that community. Both of the, of the issues we've spoken about today with informed consent and increasing diversity in, of, of, of those in clinical trials, the communities themselves that you're studying will benefit from changes in these areas. But, but it's not just those communities that will benefit, is it? Right. Striving for diversity is important for justice, but it's also important for rigorous science. If genetic variants aren't considered from ethnically diverse populations, then the understanding of the disease and of how medications interact with people's bodies, then that's limited too. And if informed consent isn't voluntary, then the information that is gleaned about how best to treat mental health issues is also not reliable. That was Monya Baker. Both the comment piece on ethnic diversity in clinical trials by Esteban G. Burchard and the comment on informed consent by Monica Ruiz Cazares can be found at nature.com forward slash nature. As always, we're ending the show with the news chat and joining me this week is online news editor Davide Kaslavecki. Davide, last week on the podcast we heard about new ways to restore vision to the retina and this week a Japanese lady has become the first person to receive next generation stem cells to treat a condition that can lead to blindness. Indeed, and this is a long-awaited uh, step towards uh, finding clinical applications for these uh, stem cells. They're called induced pluripotent stem cells, and they come directly from the body of the patient rather than coming, say, from discarded embryos, which is um, a kind of, uh, it's a method that has been 
the subject of a lot of controversy. Now, scientists have used these cells to make retinal tissue. How did they do that? So they took uh, cells from a patient in her 70s who has um, a condition called age-related macular degeneration. So from her skin cells, they made these cells basically revert to a state which is called pluripotent, where the cells are able to develop into any kind of cell type. And so they made them develop into uh, retinal, it's called retinal epithelium uh, cells. And then they coax these cells into uh, becoming a, essentially a tissue, like a, a, a layer of cells that they could later implant. And they successfully implanted these cells? So it's, it's maybe a bit early to say if the procedure will be successful. So far, so good. Um, it remains to be seen whether the tissue will remain viable inside the, the patient's eyes and um, whether it will actually help to slow down the process, the, the disease. And how big a risk was this lady taking in going for this operation? So, yeah, it also remains to be seen whether the cells are safe because some experts have, have uh, warned that because um, pluripotent stem cells are essentially like baby cells that can reproduce very fast, if that capability is, is uh, still present in the tissue that was implanted, in principle, some of those cells could go on to develop into tumors. Now, there have been uh, safety tests done on animals beforehand that showed no tumors and no risk of, of other adverse reactions, such as um, the, the tissue being rejected. But, um, you know, you never know until you actually test the procedure in, in patients, in human patients. And I'm moving on to your second story. Uh, scientists have selected a landing spot for the Rosetta probe. So this is also very exciting. Um, a lot of us may have seen videos of this uh, very bizarre comet. It's the first time that we're taking such a close look at a comet and the shape was unexpected. It looks like a, a rubber duck. And uh, Rosetta, this probe that is or now orbiting it, carries a landing probe that is supposed to land on the comet on the 11th of November. But because the shape is so bizarre, it, it's, it's very tricky to select a site, a place where the probe should target for landing. How do scientists go about selecting a landing spot on a moving comet? It was a difficult decision because there were competing uh, priorities. So um, from the point of view of the science, they would have liked to send the probe in a region of the comet that is particularly active uh, because it's spewing dust and steam and so on. And also to have a good view of the head of the duck and the body of the duck. But at the same time, they also wanted to have the best chance of landing the probe safely. And where exactly is this chosen landing site? So they've picked a landing site on, uh, quote-unquote, the head of the rubber duck. And they chose it because it's relatively free of boulders. So that might help um, not, you know, not to crash instead of safely landing. Uh, they also have a runner-up site. And the other sites, there was a short list of five, were discarded because they didn't offer the same kind of uh, safety for landing. And what's the procedure that scientists are going to have to command, basically? How is this probe going to be detached and then land on the comet? It's very interesting. The comet has very weak gravitational attraction. 
because it's so small, it's only a few kilometers wide. Maybe landing isn't the right word, it's, it's more like sticking to it. You have to somehow uh, harpoon yourself to it if you want to stay there instead of bouncing off. And the Rosetta probe will release this Philae probe at an altitude of about 10 kilometers, and then the, the Philae will uh, slowly, basically spiral. It will take seven hours for it to spiral and, and then land on the head of the comet. Now, this seems like a big undertaking. How likely is it that it will work? Before we knew that the comet had such a startling shape, the the mission team expected the, the chances at about 70 to 75% of success for the landing. Now, all bets are off, and, and they haven't actually calculated what they expect the, the odds to be, but one of the, the mission uh, team members said he thinks maybe 50-50. Thanks, Davide. Listeners, remember you can read both of those stories and more at nature.com slash news. And you can hear more about Rosetta on the Backchat podcast. That's all for this week. Next time, the theory of island biogeography gets a modern twist. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Thea Cunningham. 